0: you're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. Uh, So with that said, the book of Hosea is where we are. So you need to make sure you find um, that that book in your Bible. It'd be really helpful to have that out and open on your lap. And, And while you're finishing kind of getting settled and getting to your place there, let me just take a step back and remind you that we're in a set of sermons called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And underneath this set of sermons, I just want to say this again, is that sort of underlying driving conviction that to make whole Christians, we need the whole Bible, whole Bible, whole Christians. We need those two to go together. Uh, the, it's the whole Bible that is breathed out by God according to 2 Timothy 3. It's, it's all the scriptures, and it's the whole Bible, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, that is profitable for us. So we need the whole Bible to make whole Christians, and the reason that we need the whole Bible is because the whole Bible, all 66 books, both the Old Testament and New Testament, is telling one grand story about one great person, and his name is Jesus. Yes, you, you, you got it right. I'm so glad. So, so it's telling one grand story about one great person and his name is Jesus. So we're spending time in the Old Testament and, and here's what we're trying to do together. Together we're trying to learn how to see Jesus on every page of the, of the scriptures, every single page and every single story. So today we're going to look at the book of Hosea. Now, the book of Hosea is in the section of your Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. The the Minor Prophets. Uh, The Minor Prophets are not, uh, that, that name is not conveying that they are somehow unimportant. Like there's important prophets and there's not important prophets. That's not what it's saying. The minor prophets are minor because generally speaking, they're, they're, uh, their books are, are shorter than say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. So, so the reason they're minor is just saying that the length of their letters or books is smaller than the major prophets. So the name Hosea, uh, like Jesus and Joshua means salvation. That's, that's the name uh, Hosea. And, uh, and Hosea is unique in several different ways. Uh, in one way that is unique, he, he is preaching and, and he's a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. So at that time, Isaiah, or, uh, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And Hosea is, is preaching to, and, and he's a prophet to the Northern Kingdom. He was alive in the eighth century BC. So, so roughly uh, 750 BC, 750 years before Jesus came, this is when Isaiah is prophesying to the, the Northern Kingdom of Israel, which means it was just a few short years before the Assyrians would sweep down into the Northern Kingdom and conquer Israel. So so this was his sort of setting. So he's unique in that he is a prophet to the northern kingdom. But he's also unique in that Hosea is a living parable. It's really an amazing thing. He's a living parable. And we're going to see this play out as we jump into chapter 3. But God is saying more through Hosea's life than he does through his lips more through his life than his lips. What Hosea shows us in his life is even more important than what Hosea says to us through his lips. So, so the major point of uh, the book of Hosea, we're seeing displayed in his life. He's a living parable. And what Hosea shows us in this book is absolutely stunning. And I am praying that today we all might leave here with fresh amazement at the unbreakable, never-stopping, tender, sacrificial, jealous, and gentle love of Jesus for his people. It's an amazing picture of that. Uh, James Boyce was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for years, and he did a set of sermons through Hosea, and then they put those in a book. And his sermon, uh, the sermon title for this chapter of the Bible, Hosea chapter 3, his sermon title was, The Greatest Chapter in the Bible the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, I am partial to Romans 8, but at the same time, this is an amazing, an amazing chapter of the Bible. It it is in the Bible, and I'm just praying that the Lord would use this particular chapter in his Bible to just show to us the heartbreaking beauty of God's love. Chapter 3, Isaiah starts like this. Verse 1, And the Lord said to me, To Hosea, and the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman. The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman. Now remember, Hosea's life is a living parable. His life is saying more than even his lips. And this is why the middle phrase in verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. So go and love this woman. And, and his love for this woman is saying something about God's love for his people. Hosea's marriage, his love for Gomer is meant to go beyond itself. It's meant to point to something beyond his love for, for Gomer. It's meant to point us all the way to God's love for his people. So, so that little phrase, go again, love a woman, is meant to show us something. In that little phrase, we learn something very important about the Bible. In that little phrase, go again, love a woman, we are learning that the Bible is a love story. Do you think about the Bible that way? Genesis or Revelation as a love story? It's an amazing thing to think about how the Bible is arranged. In the Bible, marriage is not one among many other themes in the scriptures. In a lot of ways, marriage is the wraparound theme of the Bible. It starts with marriage and it ends with marriage. So think about how the story of the Bible starts. It starts with marriage in Genesis one and two. You might think about Genesis one and two as the introduction to the story. And in the introduction, we are introduced to marriage. In Genesis chapter one, it's sort of a zoomed out version of creation. God creating all that is, that's Genesis chapter one. But in Genesis chapter two, God lingers over the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter one, Adam falls, or in Genesis chapter two, Adam falls asleep and then Eve is fashioned by God from part of Adam. He takes that rib and fashions Eve from that rib. Then Adam wakes up and Adam sees his queen. And because some moments are too big and beautiful for for prose to handle, just common everyday language to handle, um, Adam breaks into poetry. This is the first time you see poetry in human history. Here it is in Genesis chapter two, verse 23. Um, Adam says, this, this woman, Eve, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, Then you get to verse 24 of Genesis chapter two, and we see a theology of marriage. That the Bible is telling us what marriage is in Genesis chapter two, verse 24 and 25. The scriptures say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the Bible's definition of marriage. One mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. that's how the Bible sees marriage. Genesis chapter two, verse 24. One mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. Then you get verse 25. And this is a description of what marriage is like. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, what do we learn about marriage from the outset of the Bible? In the introduction, we're introduced to marriage. And what do we learn about marriage in the introduction? We learned that marriage is a prioritized relationship. It's unique among every other human relationship in that we prioritize it above every human relationship. It's prioritized. Uh, There is a leaving of important relationships. There's a leaving of those, a diminishing of their priority. And then there is a cleaving to a spouse. There's the elevation of that human relationship above all other human relationships. This is a unique human uh, sort of arrangement. It's a unique relationship. Nothing and no one should creep between uh, uh, the man and and his wife, the husband and his wife. It's it's a prioritized relationship. But we also learn that it's an intimate relationship. It's one mortal life, but but it's this sort of a a one life, fully shared. One mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. Marriage, it's the most unique sort of intimate of all human relationships. It's that kind of relationship. It should be a safe place where a person can be fully known. That's the idea of nakedness in Genesis chapter two, where they can be fully known. There's no hiding, there's no lying, there's no covering. You get to see all of me physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything I am, everything I'm not, I'm fully known, I'm naked before this particular person. And at the same time, I am loved by that person. That's the idea of not ashamed. So, So a marriage is unique in its intimacy fully known fully loved naked and not ashamed this is the way the love story in the scripture starts with one man and one woman promising all they have and all they are to death do us part that's the introduction of the bible that's how the bible begins But but marriage is also at the end of the story. It's not just at the beginning of the story. The story ends with marriage. So think about the last couple of chapters of Revelation. Uh, But this marriage is not just between one man and one woman. The marriage that concludes the Bible is the marriage between God and his people. Uh, Revelation ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we are throwing a party at the wedding of God and his people, where God is rejoicing over his bride, the church. And as we read from Genesis to Revelation, what we begin to discover as we read the scriptures is that every earthly marriage, it's not a permanent thing. Every earthly marriage is meant to be a signpost uh, it's meant to be a parable, a signpost pointing beyond itself all the way to the, to, to the relationship between God and his people, the way God loves his people, the way his people are to love their God. Now think about that. Why is it that there is such a thing called love and marriage? Why is it that, that, that men and women fall in love? Why is it that people, couples, spend hours talking about nothing to one another? When they're apart, they, they, they write these juicy notes and they long to be reunited together. Why is that? Why is there a whole genre of movies <clears throat> called romantic comedies? Why, why do these things exist? Why do men and women throw themselves into that mega commitment called marriage? Why is that a part of this world? Why, why is that? The, the Bible's answer is because every one of those things, every, every one of those falling in love, that, that juicy love letter, romance, all of that, all of those things are signposts pointing beyond itself, pointing beyond the, the way a couple loves one another all the way to the unbreakable, never-stopping, tender, sacrificial, jealous, and gentle love of Jesus for his people. That's why those things exist, that's why marriage exists. So in this way, every couple is like Hosea. Every marriage is a living parable. Every time you witness a wedding, you are seeing the reenactment of the biblical love story. That's why there is such a thing called marriage. Now think about how that impacts how you relate to God. If the only way you think about your relationship with God is um, you're a servant, he's a king, you're a sheep, He's a shepherd. Or, and there's a lot of metaphors like this to talk about our relationship with God. Or, or you're a son and, and he's a father. If, if that's the only way you think about it, it would be um, you're, you're missing something. It would be a deficient way of seeing the way God relates to his people. This is why there's multiple metaphors in the Bible for how we relate to God. But, but if you don't see this one, that, that we are also a bride relating to God, our groom, If we don't see that one, we are missing something. And the Bible helps clue us into that. It wants us to see our relationship with God like that. We're the bride, he's the groom. This is Isaiah chapter 54 verse five. For your maker is your husband. Uh, Israel, your, your maker. He is not just your creator. He's not just your king. He's not just your shepherd. He is your groom. Your maker is your husband. Isaiah 62 five. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. God presents himself as a person who delights over his bride. He cherishes her. He adores her. He delights in her. This is the way we relate to God. One of the main metaphors of how we relate to God is He is our groom and we are His bride. So just like in earthly marriages, our marriage to God is to be prioritized. It's to have supreme importance of our, in our lives. Uh, the, the, the relationship we have with God is meant to be above everyone and everything else. Nothing, no one should creep in between God and His people. This is why the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is have no other gods before me. That's God as our groom saying, I am jealous for your love. I love you and I want you to love me back in the way that would be appropriate. Have no other gods before me. This is why when Jesus is asked for the greatest commandment, he says, here it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that, is, that, that is marriage language. That, that is a groom talking to his bride. Right, right? This is the way we, sh- we should relate to God. It's a prioritized marriage. Our marriage with God is to be prioritized. Our marriage with God is also to be intimate. That unique intimacy between a husband and his wife is just a faint shadow of the intimacy that God offers his people. It's a faint shadow. We can live without the shadow. You can live and be just fine without the shadow of human marriage and the intimacy there because the intimacy that Jesus offers is so surpassing in its its essence and nature. Think about the heart of God. The heart of God is like a vast universe. And God invites his people to come into his heart and to explore the vast universe of his heart forever. And then God's people, his bride, the church, we look up to God and we say, God, here is my heart. And for all those in Christ, God actually comes in. He dwells within us and makes a home within us. That is the unique intimacy of our relationship with God. It should be prioritized and intimate. The Bible tells a story of love, a story of marriage. And Hosea's marriage, like every other earthly marriage, is meant to be a parable pointing to the way that God loves his people. Now, this is where Hosea becomes really helpful. Hosea, in essence, tells the the love story of the Bible. The the Bible introduces us to it and it concludes with it. Both in the introduction and the end, we see marriage, the love story. But Hosea tells us what fits in between the end, the beginning and the end. And and Hosea shows us that the love story is told in two chapters. The the love story has two chapters. Here's chapter one of the Bible's love story. If you want a, a title to the chapter, it goes like this our unfaithfulness. That's chapter one, our unfaithfulness. And you see this in Hosea chapter three, verse one. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman. Now we would be fine if we stopped right there, right? Hosea, go again and love a woman. But it's this next phrase that gets us, who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Hosea, go again. Now that word go again takes us back to Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. So flip back and look at Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. That word again is, is taking us two chapters back. Hosea 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, this is how the, the story of Hosea opens. This is how the, the letter opens. The Lord saying to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife. Now, again, we would all be just fine if that's where the story stopped, but that's not where the story stopped. The verse keeps going and the next two words are where our problems come in. Go, take to yourself a wife a wife, uh, here's the next two words, of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. So so God is coming to Hosea and says, Hosea, take for yourself a bride, but Hosea, you're going to find your bride in in a place that you're not going to want to find her. Your bride is going to be in a brothel, Hosea. She's going to be selling her body, Hosea. So Hosea, her name is Gomer, and I want you to pursue her. All the way into the brothel, Hosea, I I want you to pursue her, woo her, speak tenderly to her, give her your heart, Hosea, and then make a promise to love her and cherish her and serve her and protect her all the days of your life. And here's the amazing thing, Hosea does it. He marries Gomer, they have children, and then somewhere between the, the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter three, Gomer leaves home. She she leaves home. She she betrays Hosea. She breaks their marriage covenant and goes back to the brothel, once again, selling her body to the highest bidder. Now, we should should be reading that, and at that point in the book of Hosea, we should be thinking, are you serious? Is this really happening? What what is going on in this story? What, What is happening here? And here's what's happening. Unfaithful Gomer is the living, breathing illustration of God's unfaithful people. Unfaithful Gomer is the living, breathing illustration of God's unfaithful people. She's an illustration of God's people who are turning from God and embracing other lovers. She is a picture of God's people who, in one moment, they swear their allegiance to God. Yes, God, we are your people. Whatever you say, our answer is yes. Uh, But then who, in the next moment, find themselves in the arms of another. She's a picture of the people of Israel, the people of God. This is is why God says to Israel, uh, through Hosea, he says, Your love is like the dew, Israel. This is what it feels like to me. It's like the dew. And before the morning sun, it vanishes. You're just, you're unfaithful. My my people are unfaithful. Gomer, in her shocking unfaithfulness, stands in the place of God's people. That's what she's doing in the story. She is standing in the place of God's people as as a living, breathing illustration of their unfaithfulness to God. And it's the prophet's. The the prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, it's these prophets who loudly and repeatedly and disturbingly raise their voices against God's people and their unfaithfulness. So, so if you look in, in those, those books of the Bible, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, th- those prophets, if you look and read in the prophets, over 60 times the prophets look at God's unfaithful people and they call out their, this is the prophet's words, their whoring. That They call that out, that they name their unfaithfulness and they call it adultery or whoring. Right, Rather than, than protecting and prioritizing their marriage with God, the people of Israel turn from God in their sin, their idolatry, their rebellion, just their willful oblivion of God. They, just, they don't even think about God. They're just living their lives as if God didn't exist without any thoughts of God. And God is saying through Hosea, and in particular through Gomer, that this is what you are, O people of Israel. You are throwing yourself into the arms of other lovers. You are committing adultery against me. So the prophets say, Isaiah chapter one, verse 21, how the unfaithful city, that's, that's um, a way of saying the whole people of Israel, how the unfaithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Uh, Jeremiah chapter two, uh, God says to his people, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve you. Uh, Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Jeremiah chapter three, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you, people of Israel, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. The people of God are unfaithful to God and their betrayals are breaking their beautiful marriage with God. But Gomer doesn't just stand in the place of God's people Gomer and her shocking unfaithfulness also stands in our place. Not not just in their place, she stands in our place. Whenever you're reading a book like Hosea, it's always important to find yourself in the story. Who who are you in the story? And, And there we are with Gomer and with Israel, there in the brothel offering our hearts to lovers who are sure to break it. That's where we are in the story. Now, let me linger here and maybe apply this in two ways. One question we need to ask when we read a chapter of the Bible like this is, and this sort of analogy of our unfaithfulness is, do we see our own sin like this? Is this the way that we see sin? Do we see it like Hosea is presenting it? See, one of our problems is that we tend to see sin as the breaking of impersonal laws. So we tend to think about it. Uh, So when we look at pornography, when we tell a little lie to save face, when we nurse that grudge, when we're unwilling to forgive, when we become obsessed with everything but God, right? We tend to think of that as, as breaking some impersonal laws just kind of out there in the universe somewhere. That's how we typically think about our sin. But Hosea shows us that is the wrong way to think about our sin. Hosea is showing us that the breaking of, uh, of God's law stabs right at the very heart of God. All the way down to the deepest places of God's heart, it wounds the heart of God. Now think about the, the illustration here. This is such a sensitive illustration but, because many in this room have tasted uh, the, the, the bitterness of betrayal. You've tasted what it, what it feels like to discover your spouse's unfaithfulness. And there are few hurts in in the human heart that do more damage than that one. There are few pills as bitter as that one. Now think about what God's doing here. God is taking that human experience. He's taking that, one of the most painful of all human experiences. He's taking that human experience, experience, and then he's saying, Israel, the, the people of God, that, that is what your sin is like to me. That's what it feels like to me. Your sin, your forgetting of me, your indifference toward me, your idolatry, your turning from me, you, you living as if I don't exist, you, you seeking your, your, the source of jo- like your joy and significance and security and other lovers. It's like adultery to me. It stabs at the deepest places of my heart. It's not just some breaking of some impersonal laws. No, it's not that. It grieves the very heart of God, our groom. God is saying, Your sin rips the, the very deepest places of my heart. Is that the way that you see sin? Is it just the breaking of some impersonal laws, or is it breaking the heart of God, your groom? Is that the way that we see sin? Here's another way we might apply the illustration of Gomer in the book of Hosea is maybe just to ask, do, do we even see our sin? Not just we see sin like that as, as breaking the heart of God, but do, do, do we even see our sin? This is, this is probably the saddest thing about the, the people of God in Hosea's time. They had taken a bed in the brothel. they had made their home in the brothel, forsaking the very God who so tenderly loved them. And here is the shocking, sad reality for the people of Israel. They couldn't even see they were doing it. Uh, Hosea chapter 12, verse eight says, Ephraim has said, that's a way of talking to the whole people of Israel. Ephraim, the whole people of Israel have said, oh, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all of my labors. They cannot find in me any iniquity or sin. This is amazing. God is looking at the people of Israel and saying, people of Israel, you're you're Gomer. That's what God is saying. You you are Gomer. And the people of Israel are looking back at God and saying, no, 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 God, God, we're good. We're not Gomer, we're we're good. God is saying Gomer and they're saying, no, no, that is not us. There is no iniquity in us. There is no sin in us. God, we, we are good. That's That's amazing. The brothel had become so normal that they couldn't even recognize they were in it. That they couldn't fathom God at this point in their history with what they can see of their lives, they couldn't fathom God actually having a problem with them. They couldn't stomach God looking at them and saying, you're Gomer, they were desensitized to their own adultery. Now, why is that? There's a lot of things we could say, but, but here's one that pops up in this book. It, one of the reasons they had a hard time seeing their own sinfulness, their own adultery, is because their adultery looked really religious. Externally, they were keeping enough of the sort of rites and rituals that God wanted. They were doing enough of the actions externally that it appeased that sort of deep guilty conscience that they had. And, and it, it, they did just enough external things that it concealed their inner barrenness that there was no love of God in their hearts. They were doing enough good things that just concealed the fact that there was no desire for God, no no pursuit of God, no affection for God, no love of God in them. Now, think of a modern day equivalent. It, It would be the person who is coming to church, who serves just enough to appease that sort of deep inner conscience, that they even bring their Bible and they know the Bible stories. They they actually know what the Bible says, and and this person, their their life even looks good enough on the outside that 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 guilty conscience is is soothed. It's not screaming out from inside that they're that bad. They actually think they're pretty good. They're doing just enough good things that that it appeases their guilty conscience. So, So they look at their life, and they're like, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I know I'm not Gomer too. I know I'm not as bad as she is. I know I'm not like her. They're doing just enough good things that they couldn't see the actual state of their heart. There was no poverty of spirit in them. None. There was no no passion, no zeal, no love for the Lord. Those first two beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That, that, that's the person who, who who actually sees their sinfulness, and Jesus says, "Blessed are you when you see your sinfulness." But but that but that beatitude was was nowhere near the people of God at this time. There was no poverty of spirit. That, that second beatitude, "Blessed are those who mourn." First beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who see the depths of their sin, that second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. They see their sin and they weep over, they mourn over their sin. That, that was, the people of Israel had none of that in them. They had no poverty of spirit, no mourning over their sin. So it should make us ask the question, when is the last time we have seen our sin before God and wept with God over it. What we've seen our sin, it's not just the breaking of some impersonal laws, it is stabbing at the very deep places of God's heart. When is the last time we've seen our sin and just wept with God? So where does this leave the Bible's story of love? The bride is in a brothel. The marriage is breaking with our unending faithfulness. There have been too many other lovers too many times. Everyone looking at this story at this point is saying, obviously the marriage is over. The marriage has no hope. There is no future for this marriage. And Hosea is here to remind us that isn't true. The the marriage is not over. Hosea shows us that God is able to rekindle a dead romance. The, The grace of God is able to bring back to life what is dead. Chapter two of the Bible's love story. Chapter one is our unfaithfulness. Chapter two is God's faithfulness. Look at Hosea chapter three. Here's the second chapter to the Bible's love story. And the Lord said to me, go again, Hosea, go, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leaflet of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore any longer, Gomer, you shall not play the whore or belong to Another man, so will I also be to you. Now that's amazing. God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, go again. Again, Hosea, go again. Just imagine if you're Hosea, Hosea looking up at God and saying, But, but God, where am I going to find my, my wife? Where is she gone, God? Where, where is she? And God looks back at Hosea and says, Hosea, you know where she is. She's in the very same place as when you first met her, Hosea but god i i can't go back there there's no there's no way I could go back to the brothel god hosea go again but God she abandoned me, but hosea go again but but God you don't even if i went how how would I buy her back what what would I do to get her back god hosea you're going to buy her back, pay whoever has her and pay whatever it costs but Go again, Hosea. But but God, after I buy her, then what am I gonna do? You're gonna bring her home, Hosea. You're going to speak tenderly to her. You're going to love her. You're going to assure her. You're going to pledge yourself to her again. And you're going to open up a new and bright future for her, Hosea. Hosea, go again. Go again. What is happening in this story? Faithful Hosea is a living, breathing illustration of Jesus, our faithful groom. Hosea is a living, breathing illustration of Jesus, our faithful groom. And the Lord said to me, go again, go again, Hosea, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as See, the metaphor of what Hosea is doing is now being applied to, to God. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Now, make sure you get this right. When you read the book of Hosea, the primary point of Hosea is not to say, husbands, this is the way you should love your wife. There are lessons to be learned there, but that's not the primary point. The primary point of Hosea is is for God to say, for all of those in Christ, this is how you have been loved. This is how you have been loved. Uh, Gomer's story is our story. It's our story. We have been unfaithful to God. As we saw last week, there's not a single commandment that we have kept. We've broken every every law there is to break. We, We have broken it. We've made our bed in the brothel, exploring every last way possible to break God's heart. And there we are on our bed, exhausted and worn out in the arms of another. And God comes again. He comes again. Verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. It's here that Hosea points us cryptically but clearly to Jesus. He's looking forward to the moment when the people of God will return to their God. They'll return to their God. And Then he says, and David, their king. Now, when you come across that phrase, you, you probably ought to say something like, well, hold on, but isn't David dead? So, so who, is this, who is this king? Who, who is David the king? Who, who is Hosea talking about? Well, the New Testament makes it clear. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. It's Jesus, Hosea is is showing us here that that it's Jesus who came into the brothel of this world, found us broken in our bed, blind to our own sin and adultery, and it's Jesus who bought us, not with 15 shekels of of silver, no, not with with imperishable things, not, not with any shekels, but with his very own life. His very death on the cross. He, he bought us. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12: For you were bought with a price, you, you were purchased, you, you were bought. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you were ransomed, purchased from the marketplace. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable perishable things such as silver or gold, but this is the way you were ransomed. Here's how you were bought, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. That's how you have been bought. The good news of the gospel, you could sum it up in these four words. It's Jesus in Gomer's place. That's the grace of God. It's Jesus in Gomer's place. Now, I love this prophetic picture in verse five. Hosea is looking to the future and he's seeing what the future is going to, to hold. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return. And they shall seek the Lord their God and David their king, Jesus himself, and they shall come in fear to the Lord to see his goodness in the latter days. Now, Hosea had no idea that it would take 750 years for Jesus to show up. He just knew that one day God's unfaithful bride would be purchased, bought, and redeemed by Jesus, their faithful groom. He saw that one day, he foresaw that one day when the people of God purchased by by Jesus their groom, the bride of Christ, the church, that the church would gather around Jesus, their ultimate David. Much like we are today, the church would gather around Jesus in fear. Now that word fear is not terror. That word fear is, is in a stunned amazement. With jaw-dropping eyes that that the people of God would gather around Jesus and with great tears of great joy, they would celebrate the goodness of Jesus. They would celebrate the amazing grace of Jesus. The the grace that takes prostitutes like us and changes them into perfect and presentable brides. That's what Hosea is seeing here. Can you believe we have a God like that? Can you believe our God is like that? A God who comes after rebellious, hard-hearted adulterers like us. He chases us down. He woos us. He wins our heart, and then he pledges his faithfulness to us forever. That's our God. That is our God. And I want to end with this. This whole story... Hosea chapter three reminds me of a story of a friend of mine. His name is Matt. He's a pastor uh, in the Dallas area. And years ago, he told this story of meeting a girl in, uh, at college in one of his classes. And this girl had a very promiscuous past. She had bounced from this boyfriend to that boyfriend. And uh, Matt, my friend, his group of friends were going to a big youth sort of event. Think of like um, the, the whole true love waits thing in, in the early 2000s. He was going to, to that sort of a big youth event. And at the last minute, they invited uh, th- this friend, this girl that, that he had gotten to know, they invited her to come along with them. So there they are, the sermon begins. Uh, his group of friends and, and this new friend, this, this girl that he had just met, And the sermon starts, and the sermon starts with this guy pulling out a rose. It was this beautiful rose, a freshly cut rose. Undamaged, pure, undefiled. And then the guy, as he's preaching, hands it to a teenager in the front row. And he says, why don't you take that rose? And after you have handled it, after you have used it, after you have smelled it, then pass it on to another person. So he goes on preaching and then he comes around to the climactic point in the sermon. He he asks for the rose back. And and you can just imagine what it looked like. Probably something like that. Worn out, ripped up, beyond repairable. And for the punchline of the sermon, he holds up that rose and he says, if you sleep around, If you bounce from boyfriend to boyfriend, this guy to that guy, if if that's you, sleeping around, do you know what you're going to look like one day? You're going to look like this rose, damaged, unrepairable. And then for the big punchline, he says, and who's going to want a rose like that? And my friend Matt just describes this anger welling up inside of him as he's sitting beside this broken and damaged rose. And and just this, this anger rising up in him as he's listening to this person talk, this person who who is supposed to be preaching the good news of Jesus, and he's missing the whole point of the good news of Jesus. Who is it that, that wants the rose? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is, Jesus wants the rose. That's like the whole point of the good news of Jesus is to say, if you're beyond repair, damaged, broken, exhausted in your sin, you're the person Jesus wants. This is why Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, is to take that rose and make her beautiful again. That's the whole point of the gospel. And for some of us in this room this morning, we have run so far and so hard from God that we're just wondering, can God ever rekindle that dead romance? Can he ever do it? And Hosea is here to show you the grace of God can rekindle it. It can bring back to life anything that's dead. Amen? Why don't you bow with me there where you are? And I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful. To wipe away anything that wouldn't be helpful this morning. The Bible is telling a story of love. It's a love story. So the first question we need to ask is, have we married Jesus? Have we married him? Has there there been a point in our life where we have turned from our sin? All of our other lovers, we have turned from our adultery against God the groom. We have turned from our sin and we've thrown our life upon the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Has there ever been a moment where where you have become so exhausted in your sin, so worn out by your sin that you've finally given up on you? You've finally given up on all the other lovers and you have thrown yourself upon Jesus, our faithful groom. Has there ever been a moment where you have held up your hands coming to God with the empty hands of faith and saying, oh God, Here I am. Rescue me. Save me. Redeem me. I am trusting in the finished work of Jesus, his perfect life, his death on the cross for my sin. Save me. Some of us right here, right now, this morning, this is what God is doing in you. He's bringing you in. to to that biblical love story. He's inviting you into the marriage and your response this morning is to say, yes, God, I do. I, I do. Here's my life, take me, I'm yours. And if that's you, and for the very first time, you are turning from your sin and throwing your life upon Jesus and you're saying, Jesus, rescue me, save me. This is what the Bible calls faith or belief. Save me, oh God. If that's you, you can pray that right now where you are to God. You can come to God right now with the empty hands of faith, trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And right now, right here, God will rescue you, marry you, bring you into that story. And if that's you this morning, just with every head bowed, if that's you this morning, will you just raise your hand there? I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna, just would you raise your hand and look at me, make eye contact with me if that's you? If God is doing that in your heart this morning? Yep, I see you. Thank you. Anyone else this morning who God is doing that right now in your heart? Just raise your hand and make eye contact with me. Yep, I see you, brother. I see you. Any others? Yeah, I see you. I see you. For everyone who raised your hand, here's the most important thing you could do. As soon as we finish, we're gonna have our prayer team and some of our pastors up front come down and let us pray with you this morning. We would love to begin that journey with you. So make sure you see us up here right when we finish. Now, to those who are in the love story, you're married to God, you're one of God, you're, you're in Christ. Here's the invitation in the book of Hosea it's to come home to God. This is what the Bible calls repentance. It's just to, to come back home to God, to, to come back home to your Lord, to come back home to your, to your groom. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, here's the invitation. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Here's the first step to a rekindled romance with God this morning it's repentance, it's turning from other lovers and coming back to your faithful God. So, oh God, would you work right now within us? God, would you enable deep, genuine, heartfelt repentance in this room? Oh God, would you do that? Meet us now, oh God. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.